me if I was, and I said, well, I just, I don't know. I don't know. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning as we have entered into the gates with thanksgiving and into your courts with praise. We ask, Father, for you to forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our shortcomings, our excuses. Create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Make our unclean lips clean and righteous before you. King Jesus, may we recognize that as we have entered into the gates this morning, that we are indeed on holy ground. Prick our hearts, God, to be in awe of you and your presence. Lord, we welcome you, Holy Spirit. Invade the atmosphere this morning. Let it not just be business as usual this morning, this week, this new year. We ask, Father God, for you to renew, refine, and repurpose. Reignite the fire of your Holy Spirit to not only be in us, but on us. Let our hearts become a burning fire shut up in our bones that we can no longer contain. Your word says in Isaiah 43, 19, that I am doing something brand new, something unheard of, even now it sprouts and grows and matures. Don't you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and open up the flowing streams in the desert. God, help us to perceive it, to believe. Help us to have active faith. Help us to be so desperate for you that we know one touch of even the tassel of your garment could heal. Give us that kind of faith as we have celebrated the birth of our Savior in the new year. Isaiah 11 has really spoken to me as spring is coming and it is a new year, how the Spirit moves and works. I want to pray this over us as a body and I want to specifically pray it over Tim and declare it and release it over the body today. So, Tim, if you could come, Jerry and Eden is going to stand in Jesse's place. And if y'all just lay your hands on him as I read Isaiah 11. And I encourage you to speak this over your spouse, your children, yourself. This is Isaiah 11. The cut-off stump of Jesse will sprout, and a fruitful branch will grow from his roots. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him. The Spirit of extraordinary wisdom, the Spirit of perfect understanding, the Spirit of wise strategy, the Spirit of mighty power, the Spirit of revelation, 
and the spirit of the fear of Yahweh. Tim, he will find his delight in living by the spirit of the fear of the Lord. He will neither judge by appearances nor make his decisions based on rumors. We declare this over you, Tim. With righteousness, he will uphold justice for the poor and defend the lowly of the the earth. His words will be like a scepter of power that conquers the world. And with his breath, he will slay the lawless one. Righteousness will be his warrior's sash and faithfulness his belt. We ask these things in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and have the kids dismiss their time of worship upstairs. That's uh, preschoolers, three years old through the fifth grade. You guys can make your way up. And thank you for joining us this morning as we um, gather and celebrate a risen Savior and worship together in his presence. A few things for you guys to know. Um, If you have your little half bulletin sheet, you will see that uh, there's some things coming up. There's a um, men's breakfast coming up. There's a sign-up for that in the back table there. There's a women's lunch event. There's a sign-up for that on that same table. There's missions conference. Uh, there, are, there is the uh, um, congregational meeting is on that list as well. So please make note of those dates. If you want to sign up for the chili cook-off as a part of the um, Congregational meeting, if you want to sign up to be a part of either the men's or women's event, those sign-up sheets are all on that back table in the back of this room. Um, also want to tell you, so this, um, at the end of the service today, we're going to have, we're going to ask you to stay for just for a few minutes. It's going to end the way the service typically does. We're going to have, uh, I'm going to preach a sermon, we're going to have the final song, I'm going to come up here and pray, and then I'm going to give you a blessing from the Lord. But then after that, If you would stay for just a few minutes, we have an explainer video that we're going to show that will help you um, set up a profile and get an app that's called Church Center. Because we have been using this uh, online platform to track volunteers, giving, um, membership information, all sorts of stuff has been going on through this online platform for a number of years, and we want to take the next step to where we can manage small group info and other things in there, internal communications through this Church Center app. Um, it's really easy to use, but it will take a minute to get it set up. And so we have just a like a five-minute video that we're going to play at the end of the service today to explain to you. You can pull out your phone and get the app on your phone before you leave here today. If that intimidates you, we have a couple people that are going to be available in the lobby to help you get that app on your phone um, as well. You can always call the office after the fact. We'll have people here. We'll do this the next two Sundays. We'll have people in the lobby after the service intentionally to help you get connected that way. Um, this evening, as an example, this evening um, our kids' ministry is not meeting on campus um, because they're going ice skating. And that registration, if any of you registered for that, that registration was done through Church Center. And that's just a platform that we're going to use for a variety of different reasons. And so it would be helpful for you to have, whether you give online or just, so once we get it, here's, here's kind of the, maybe I'm, I need to sell it to you a little bit more. But once we get it and we get everything up and running and everybody sets up their profile, it's an online directory for us. 
So if you're looking for contact information for another member of the church, you don't have to call the church office to ask for a phone number. You can get on your app and you can see it right there. And you can get um, quick email addresses, phone numbers, addresses. If you've been to somebody's house like five times and you always forget the address, and now you've been there enough to where you're embarrassed to ask for their address again because you should know how to get to their house, you can pull out the app, speaking from experience here, you can pull out the app and you can see, look up the address and see how you can get to their house. So there's a lot of benefits to it, and um, like I said, I just invite you to stick around for five minutes, and um, we're, there's going to be a quick explainer video. You can set up the app on your phone um, as you're sitting here. But lastly, I do want to just say, um, evening um, ministry is going to be a little bit different today. We will have some small groups that are meeting, and so if you know your small group is meeting, then I'll leave that up to the small group leaders. But the um, youth are on their way back from a retreat. They've been gone for two nights in Andrews, North Carolina. They've had a great time, received some good teaching. So be praying for them as they'll be um, departing probably pretty soon here. By the time we're done with this service, they'll be on their way back and back to the church parking lot this afternoon. Um, and our kids are going to be going to uh, Chattanooga to do ice skating in lieu of their normal Sunday night ministry today. If you want, if you've missed signups for that and you still want to participate, Rika did tell me that there's a couple more spots for ice skating, but don't leave the building today without talking to her about that if you want to sign up late for that. All right, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're, we're turning a quarter. We've made it through half of the book of 1 Timothy and I'll just say, we haven't spent three full months on 1 Timothy. We took a break, okay? So we're going slow, but we're not going that slow. We've got a few more weeks to go through 1 Timothy 4, 5, and 6. And this is where it gets really important as we start to deal more with this issue of false teaching. I told you months ago when we started 1 Timothy that one of the major themes is how to identify, address, and combat false teaching within the church and within the culture. That's a big part of this book, and that's why I think it's timely and foundational for us. But we haven't actually done a whole lot of that up to this point. That's because it's more the second half where you start to see this. And today is really a central passage in identifying and um, combating, self, or, uh, combating false teaching. I always find it interesting to look up the word of the year. Maybe some of you do this too, but Merriam-Webster, every year, dictionary.com, they release their word of the year. And the criteria is they look through the online searches. You know, now that the dictionary is all online, people don't look up in a, in a paper-printed dictionary anymore. People look up definitions of words online, which makes it easier to track, okay? So dictionary.com, they know what words are being, uh, are being searched for significantly over the year. And whenever there is a word that is searched for significantly more in one year versus the previous year, that becomes the word of the year, a word that gets a lot of traction. So there's a word that was, that was searched for 1,700% more in 2022 than in 2021. The word is gaslighting. Now, some of you have heard that word and have always wondered what it is. Well, I'm going to tell you right now. Gaslighting is not a word that was regularly in our vernacular just a couple years ago, obviously. 1,700% increase just over the last year. Gaslighting is a word that actually originally comes from a play that was written in 1938 and then a movie that was made out of that play. That play in 1938, there was a man that was hiding his illicit activities from his wife and he was doing something in the attic 
that caused the gas lights in their home to dim every time he was doing something up there. The wife began to notice, hey, why, every time you go up there, the lights dim, what's going on? And he denied it over and over to the point of convincing her that she was the crazy one because, her, because she was imagining the lights dimming every time he went up into the attic. So now the word gaslighting is used in our culture to describe, this is the dictionary definition, the act or practice of grossly misleading someone, especially for personal advantage. It's something that, again, I don't think I had heard the word two years ago. Whenever, in two years, three years, whenever we started hearing it um, often, and now, within the last year, boy, it's blown up. You hear it everywhere. It's a word used for trying to convince somebody else that they're the crazy one. And you see it tossed around in culture. You see it used in disagreements online or in person. Well, you're just gaslighting. I'm not the crazy one. You're the crazy one. You're trying to convince me I'm the crazy one. And this word is, is so timely in our day because we know when words like this show up in the culture means there's a little bit of distrust going on. That's why we have words like this that were not used significantly in a previous generation and now all of a sudden are coming into use 90 years after a play was first, in, was first written to introduce the term to the world. For 85 years, nobody knew what gaslighting was, and then in the last couple, we see it. It's because we live in an age of distrust. We live in an age in which we're trying to figure out who's actually the crazy one. Am I the crazy one? Are we the crazy ones? Are they the crazy ones? And everybody's calling each other crazy. And so then we have this gaslighting and this discussion of the term gaslighting. Well, today we, we don't talk about gaslighting. That's not necessarily the sermon, but the sermon is related. Because we talk about false teaching that was happening in the first century in the city of Ephesus that Paul is addressing with Timothy. And here's the problem that, that Timothy was facing. There were people that were intentionally misleading the church. There were people that were bringing in ideas that were not the truth of who God is, not the truth of the gospel, not the truth of the scriptures. People were taking those ideas and introducing them in to this church in Ephesus. And Timothy, one of his primary responsibilities was to combat those ideas and stand up for the truth. And here's Paul, this older man who had mentored Timothy, trying to support him in that task. So what he does in 1 Timothy 4 is he gives them a little bit of background on why false teaching is becoming such a problem within the church in Ephesus. Some background. Where, where does false teaching come from? But then beyond that, how do you address it? How do you test it? How do you discern that something that sounds good is false? How do you discern that you actually do know the truth and that person is intentionally trying to mislead you. And so there's a, an, a spirit of the age in which Timothy and Paul are living and addressing in this passage that reminds us of our age. We have to know what the truth is. We have to know how to discern what is true and what is not true so that we can stand up for what is true. That's where we were last week, right? The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church stabilizes the truth, upholds the truth for all to see. And so here we are as the gathered church, as the gathered church 
seeking to understand better how we can discern truth from error. That's exactly where Paul is leading us today. So I'll start by um, reading in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. And uh, I'll read the first three verses first. Or I'll read the first two verses, okay? The first section is false teaching. Where does it come from in verses 1 and 2? And then the second section that we'll get to in a second is how do we test the false teaching? So verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And we'll stop right there for right now. This is where false teaching comes from in Paul's day and in our day. Two quick verses. And you see them. They're pretty dramatic. Paul says that the Spirit warns that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. This is not a light way of addressing a disagreement. This is Paul not pulling any punches, straight up calling the false teaching that Timothy was facing in his church demonic. It's a hard, it's a hard accusation. Paul, as an apostle, he better back that up somehow. He better know for sure that what he is saying is true if he's going to call people that Timothy knows, that Paul knows, people that are following the teaching of spirits and of demons. So, three places, three origins of this false teaching in the scriptures, in this scripture, and I think we see them in our culture as well. The Holy Spirit of God is present in verse 4, warning Timothy and others through the scriptures that there will come a day in latter times. We have to ask the question first, when is the latter times? I'll tell you, Timothy and Paul, according to, if you read what Paul is saying here, he believes they're living in latter times, in later times. So that means if 2,000 years ago, Paul and Timothy were in later times, then we are in later, later, later times, 2,000 years later. That the same era of church history we're, we're still in. Because Christ has come, Christ has established his kingdom here on earth by conquering over the enemies of sin, death, Satan. They, they have been conquered. And yet, the victory has not been fully realized because there is still sin on this earth. We are still experiencing the effects of the fall. Even God's people who are redeemed and, and rescued from our sin, we are still battling with the old sin natures that are within us. And so it doesn't look like we're living in the state of victory at times, and yet we are. Because Christ, the eternal king, has come to establish his kingdom. And through his victory over sin, death, and Satan, he brought victory to all who would believe in him and receive that sacrifice for ourselves. So we're in the state of victory. We're in the later times. And yet, as we get closer and closer to Jesus' final return, we are told in the scriptures, we will see great darkness. And we will see great deception. And it will get harder to stand for the truth. It will get harder to stand for the truth because it's going to get harder to discern the truth. And that is the day that they lived in 2,000 years ago. And if it's gotten harder since then, then we can assume it's really, really hard in our age. 
I say this all the time, but I always think it's good to remind ourselves of this. Never in human history has more information been so readily available than in our generation. And that is true of both good information and really, really bad information. Never have we had better access to know and discern the truth for ourselves, and never has it been harder to do that because of all the other noise. We have information that is really good, that is really truthful, but figuring out what is the true information and and weeding away the false information is excruciatingly hard. It's the same for, for the church in the teaching that you receive. It is important that we gather together here as, as Jesus' church in person to open the word of God together and receive good teaching. And yet we know there's great teaching available online too. And yet we know when we go online, there's really bad teaching available online too. And so discernment is the great challenge of our day. Discerning from what is true and what is false. But Paul says that some of these false um, ideologies have a demonic origin. Ephesians 6 says that our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this world. That's a great verse to make people a little bit uncomfortable, especially new believers, especially those people that are uncomfortable with the spiritual realm. But there is truth in that passage. It is the word of God written and revealed to us. What Paul wants us to know in Ephesians 6 is the same thing he's communicating here in 1 Timothy 4. There are demonic forces that are seeking to disrupt the church, that are seeking to, uh, to confuse the church and mislead God's people. And that it creates this great distraction for the church of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesians 6, 1 Timothy 4, written into the same church. I would love it if at the end of this First Timothy series, you can recognize that as you start to see that. That it's the same context. That the book of Ephesians was written to the whole church, and First Timothy 4 was written directly to the leader of that same church. So there's clearly something demonic, something spiritual going on in that church where they're facing great challenges. And sometimes, here's what we do. Sometimes we mess up the battle. Sometimes we think that we're battling against people. Sometimes we think it's us versus them. It's we who believe this versus they who believe that. And what Ephesians 6 is a good reminder for us is that they who believe that are under the deception of demonic forces and the spiritual powers of darkness. I didn't call them demons. I said that they're deceived. There's still people created in the image of God with flesh and blood whom should be loved and cared for and addressed as people created in the image of God. They are not the enemy. And yet, they are saying things that are contrary to the word of God, contrary to the truth that we know. And so we have to recognize that, first of all, errors have a demonic origin. False teaching comes from the, the, the act of demons to... Um, to distract people and mislead people. And yet, there's people involved too. So the people aren't all the way off the hook in this passage. Those that were led away by by the demons devoted themselves in this passage, devoted themselves to this teaching. He identifies these people as insincere liars. Paul does not say that the people who are led away by by demonic teaching He doesn't say that they're off the hook. 
that they're innocent for what they preach and what they teach and the misleading ways that they move. He says the people are accountable as well. So as much as we agree with Ephesians 6 that our primary wrestle is not against flesh and blood, we must admit that we don't blame the devil for all of our sins. The devil made me do it. No. Your sin, your flesh, your fallenness, your, your broken human will, that's what led you to that sin. Devils, demonic forces, they might have introduced the temptation into your, into your heart and into your mind. They may have misled people, but ultimately we are willful people that willfully sin, that willfully choose error. So we have to remember both, that there's a demonic origin and there's a fallen, sinful human condition origin to the errors that we see all around us. Verse 2 speaks a little bit more about the human origin. These liars who have devoted themselves to the teaching of deceitful spirits and demons, their consciences are seared. The word there, Greek word for seared, is, sounds a lot like cauterized. There's a deadness to this searing. It's where we get that word in linguistic origins. So what has happened in this sequence of events is now revealed in a process. First, the false teachers turn a deaf ear to their own consciences. And then over time, as they ignore their own conscience and ignore the Spirit of God trying to get a hold of them, they cauterize their conscience to where they no longer feel guilt for doing something that is wrong. That's the first step. And then, because their conscience is cauterized, because the Spirit of God, they, they just ignore that vo voice, they turn, they're deaf ear, and they have no problem with becoming insincere liars. And over time, an insincere liar exposes himself to the influence of a deceiving spirit. And then, after being exposed to the deceiving spirit, they lead others to do the same. And what Paul is talking about is those that ultimately depart from the faith, here in verse 1 and 2. Now, let me clarify something here. Verse 1 and 2 is pretty extreme. We see people that have departed from the faith. But I want you to understand that if they had actually outwardly departed from the faith, Paul would not be as concerned to address their condition to Timothy. So don't get so distracted by that phrase that they've departed from the faith. Paul and Timothy know that they've departed from the faith, but not everybody in the church does. Some people in the church just think, well, they see things a little bit differently. Some people in the church think, well, they have some really good, strong points to make. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. In this setting, when they move this far away, they're actually departing from the faith, and they are standing against the revealed truth of God. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a time out from this passage to address something here. When I say that it's hard to discern truth from error, one of the other things that goes along with this discussion that is excruciatingly hard is to define and discern what are the issues that we die for. What are those truths that are so important and so essential that we must know this is the truth of God's word? What are those issues that we must have agreement on? Versus what are those issues that they're important, but maybe we don't have to have complete agreement on. We can agree to disagree on some things that the Bible talks about. And what are those issues that the Bible just doesn't clearly address? 
And so we can have a lot of room for disagreement on. Because I think we would all acknowledge here that the Bible does, is not written in such a way that every person in this room should have agreement on every single issue in which you feel strongly about based on what, what the scriptures reveal. There are things the scriptures do not address for our day-to-day life. There are convictions that we hold, that we, things we think are important, that aren't doctrinal. So if the scriptures don't tell us everything there is to know about life in this world, then how do we discern what are those big picture items, those big bricks which we must all agree on? And, and that's not necessarily the goal for today to unpack that, but I'll, I'll give you a short version. What every church and every Christian need to be able to do is discern the difference between first-tier issues and second-tier issues and third-tier issues. And understand, those first-tier issues are those issues that define the gospel and define our life with Christ. And we cannot have any question about the first-tier issues because if somebody disagrees with the first-tier issues, that person will be said by Paul and should be said by us to have departed the faith. So if there's any path to salvation apart from Christ, if we have people that believe that, then they've departed the biblical faith. The gospel says only Jesus. The gospel says all of us have sinned, all of us has fallen short, all of us enter into relationship with Jesus the same way through his death, burial, and resurrection, and us accepting the offer, repenting of our sins, and coming into new life with Christ in him. That is the biggest brick. That God is who he says he is, three in one. That Jesus really did live and die and rise again for our sins, and he's the only way to reach reconciliation and peace with God. We started out there. That's the brick that we can't do anything with. We have to believe that. We have to affirm that. We have to agree on that. But then, as we get farther away from that brick, those issues become a little bit more difficult to discuss, and maybe we need to have a little bit of room for disagreement on. So the the question of of how you live the life with Christ, the question of, of what you believe about secondary matters, those things are different. Let me give you an example. If we were to open the book of Revelation and let everybody in this room tell what they think, what they've been taught, the convictions they hold to on how the end of days is going to go and how exactly that timeline works, there's going to be broad disagreement. There's going to be broad disagreement and broad confusion. Some people, you, you just got nervous because you think I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm not going to ask you to do that. Some of you are not going to have any clue what to say to that question. Others of you are going to have hard, con- hard convictions this way, hard convictions this way, hard convictions this way. There's going to be disagreement. What we say in, in Fellowship Bible Church's um, uh, mission, or doctrinal statement, we say that we all agree that Jesus will return in bodily form to to bring his people into his kingdom. Now, when that's going to happen, what order that things are going to transpire in, we don't make an official statement about. And so here's, here's why I'm bringing this up. If we're going to discern truth from error, we have to have some level of guide on how we define the most important elements of truth and say, we cannot disagree on this, but on these things we can we can agree to disagree on some of them. I'll tell you, I, this is your homework assignment for today. If you want to know what this church defines as the essentials, that's there in our doctrinal statement. 
That information's readily available online from us. If you go to fellowshipdalton.com, you'll find our doctrinal statement. And those are those big points that we want everyone in this room, everyone that chooses to connect with Fellowship Bible Church as your church, those are those big um, theological doctrinal points that we want agreement on. But we'll go back to 1 Timothy 4 here. And we'll say, now that we've figured out that false teaching is rampant in our culture as it was in the first century, now we've figured out that the origins are really super scary, demonic origins, people that are liars and insincere, people that have allowed their consciences to be, to be seared through their own disobedience and ignoring of the Spirit's work in their life. Now we can go into, is there a way to identify truth from error? We'll start in verse um, 3. So the people whose consciences are seared, in verse 2, the false teachers, they are those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith, and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the, for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So starting in verse 3 here, we start to see two tests that Paul gives to the church to discern error. One is a belief test, a theological test. One is a behavior test, a, a test of godliness. And so first we'll, we'll say that there, there's an identification in these few verses of the types of false teaching Paul's dealing with. And let's be clear here. As we unpack this passage... There are, the challenges of false teaching are different in our day than they were in Paul's day. So Paul's going to talk directly about the challenges he's facing in that church. The problem is asceticism. Those who restrict certain behaviors and say, oh, those behaviors are sinful, inherently sinful, wrong in every way. One of those examples is those who forbid marriage. It's one of the paths that the false teachers are taking. They're not just saying that that sex is bad in, outside of marriage. They're saying sex is bad. Sexuality is bad. It's evil. It's carnal. So they're forbidding marriage, not because they don't like the institution of marriage. They're forbidding marriage because they think the problem is sexuality. And they are limiting people against any level of sexual behavior, even within a marriage context. Now, that is clearly not what we believe, and that's not what the churches believe. That's not what Scripture has written. Now, we, we know that God has put clear boundaries in place for our sexuality. We know that God cares about what we do with the bodies that have been created in His image. God cares about what we think in our minds and the lusts of our minds, and God also cares about the actions of our body because he designed our body to work in a certain way. And he created the institution of marriage, and he created it to be good for human flourishing, for the building of the family, because the first man was incomplete without a helper suitable for him. 
Marriage was God's idea. He loves the idea. And from the very beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture, God cares about marriage. And so this is a false doctrine that was easily, easily combated within Paul's day. And yet, some of the people were still being led astray by it. The false teachers, not just did they forbid marriage, they required abstinence from certain foods. Certain foods that Paul says God created to be good. God created them to be enjoyed. And yet they were restricting people from from taking part in that. And so what the false teachers are doing is they're seeking to take away two basic hungers of the human condition. The sexual urge and the the urge for food. They're trying to teach self-discipline by putting limitations in those two areas that God does not put there. And what Paul is saying in verses 3 through 5 here is that everything that God has made is created for our enjoyment. And now let's, let's be clear here. There are boundaries in how we enjoy the sexuality that God has made. There are boundaries, there's responsible boundaries in how we enjoy the gift of food that God has made. We don't, listen, we don't just take this passage and say, based on 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 5, I can eat whatever I want and God's going to bless it. There are practical repercussions for eating bad things. We know this. Jericho learned this this week. We got a call on Friday. Jess and I were in a meeting together. Simul- you know, one after another, we got missed calls from the school nurse. Never a happy thing. Three kids, who knows what's going on. We, got, we get these back-to-back calls. We're like, okay, we need to call. Jess calls. And, um, and I'm standing next to her while she's hearing this conversation, okay? And I just hear Jess's end. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, okay. And I'm like, what in the world is happening? There's something that has given her great pause, great surprise. So, so she gets off the phone. I said, so what happened? She's like, well, nurse gets on the phone. Mrs. Cheney. I think things are okay now, but, reassuring, but I want you to know, I feel like you should know, Jericho ate 18 jalapenos at lunch today, (laughs) and he ended up in my office. Sounds about right. Of course, the story from an eight-year-old boy is um, that it's all about who's at the table. Nobody eats 18 jalapenos for pleasure. But, you know, when one kid at the table says, ooh, you should eat one jalapeno, and then all the girls at the table are like, ooh, Jericho, you should eat those jalapenos. All of a sudden, you go from one to 18 like it's nothing, just because the girls thought it was funny. So y'all pray for us. That's going to be interesting as he grows. Um, But Jericho learned, hey, when you eat 18 jalapenos for lunch, there's real practical repercussions. You got to go to the nurse. You missed a little bit of class. You don't feel great the rest of the afternoon. Feels a little weird. God is not saying here, Paul is not saying here, just eat whatever you want and there's no repercussions to it. In the same way, God is not saying your sexuality is to be enjoyed however you choose to enjoy it because God created it and it's good. Right? We know that about food. 
that food is to be enjoyed in limits. So why is it hard for us to believe that sexuality is also to be enjoyed and experienced within limitations, God-given limitations? But God defines these things in a couple of different ways here. He says that the problem is that those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods are requiring or restricting what God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. We need to. We need to recognize that God's creation is good. And it's really hard sometimes to recognize that. Because sometimes God's creation is a little bit scary. And sometimes God's creation, we're, we're full in a, a, a fallen world. We're full of risks, temptations, difficulties. And what God is reminding us of throughout his scripture, and the writers of the scriptures are reminding us, God's creation is good. Enjoy it. In this life, you can have joy. And sometimes Christians... We get so beat up by life that we're just, we, we default back into this grin and bear it until eternity mentality. This life is hard. It hurts. So I'm just going to do the best I can, and one day I'm really going to enjoy heaven. But God is telling us here, you can enjoy his good creation in this life as well. Within a marriage relationship, within, within the food that should be enjoyed food should be good. It should taste good. You should enjoy it. You should enjoy it with friends and family around the table. It should be an opportunity to enjoy the good gifts of God. Nature should go. You should enjoy it. You should go out and enjoy it and experience life because God has given it and it is good. And when Christians, when those who believe and know the truth, enjoy God's created order, our reaction is thanksgiving. We praise God for it. The problem with the false teachers is not just in what they think. The problem with the false teachers is what they do, how they behave, how they act. Because false teachers could say, oh yeah, that food is good. Yeah, that nature is good. But they don't enjoy those in a spirit of thanksgiving to God. And you know the difference, right? If you've ever parented a child, you know the difference between a child that is grateful for the things that they receive and a child that becomes a little bit not grateful, a little bit entitled, a little bit less than, than helpful, a, a bad attitude because of the things that they think they now deserve. In our relationship with God, God has given us so many good gifts, we should receive them with thanksgiving. That, believe it or not, that, is a weapon to be used against false teaching. Finding contentment and the good gifts of God and being able to experience the good gifts of God with thanksgiving. That's a weapon that we use to combat the allure of false teaching. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. So the first test is a theological test. What Paul is saying is that this false teaching of his day directly directly came against something they all knew. They all knew that God created man and woman. 
They knew that God created woman to be with man and marriage was God's idea. They all knew that God created the beast of the field and, and God created food to be enjoyed by humans. And so there is a doctrinal test here where Paul is saying, you guys know, church in Ephesus, you know that God created these things and that they are good. So the first way that we discern false teaching is with a little bit of common sense in how we know the scriptures. When we know that there is an, a, a style of teaching, an ideology that confronts something that we know to be true from Scripture, then we know we trust the Scriptures and not this new idea of our age. And we're going to, in a second, we're going to apply this to a couple of ideas of our age. So false teachers of, God, of Paul's day dishonored creation by saying something that was good was not good. False teachers in our day twist God's word, mess with God's created order, and God's created plan in similar ways. Next, there, there's, a, there's an ethical test of godliness. First, the theological test, the belief test. This is the behavior test. Verse, um, verse 6 and 7. Actually, let's, go, let's just go to verse 7, okay? Uh, this is a test, okay? I want you to read the first half of the verse, and try not to look at the second half of the verse. I know it's all on the screen there together. You know what the second half says. But now I want you to think, what makes most sense for the second half of the verse is the first half of the verse says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. That's the first half of the verse. So then, what would the second half of the verse be devoted to? The first half of the verse is, keep away from irreverent, silly myths. So then the second half of the verse should be, rather, know the truth. That makes sense. Rather, focus on the word. Rather, study so that you can discern and not be distracted by irreverent myths, but know the truth. But that's, that's actually what's fascinating to me about this verse. This verse just sticks in my head and it rattles around. Because this verse is actually something that comes out all the way through 1 Timothy 4. All the way through the whole book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. There's something surprising that Paul does. He's talking about doctrine and truth. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about behavior and godliness. He's talking about what you know. And then all of a sudden it's what you do. And for Paul, those two things are so intimately connected that false teachers are not just people that believe the wrong things. They are, people, they are sinners that do the wrong things, that intentionally mislead. When Paul is trying to define who a church leader is, he's not just wanting a church leader who knows the truth. He's wanting a church leader who is a man of character, who is holy, who doesn't just know the right things, but does the right things. Belief and behavior, theology and ethics are intimately connected all the way through 1, 2 Timothy and Titus. False teachers are wicked and, and uh, right teachers are godly. And really, the doctrine is downstream from the godliness all the way through. The problem with false teachers is not that they start to believe the wrong thing intellectually. It's that their sin takes them away first. That's what we saw in verses 1 and 2. They believe the wrong things because they're sinful. The true teachers, the godly church leaders, they believe the right things because they're pursuing godliness and character. Character matters in this passage. 
And this verse 7 is such a clear contrast. It doesn't make sense to say, ignore false doctrine, ignore irreverent silly myths, and pursue godliness and behavior. It's an informational statement in the first half and an ethical statement in the second half. But Paul is saying something very, very powerful to us. The way to combat false doctrine is pursuing Jesus. Godliness. Learn what God defines character as. That's what 1 Timothy 3 is all about. Defining character and maturity. If you want to avoid false teaching, pursue hospitality. That doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? But that's, that's Paul's way. You want to avoid false teaching? Pursue generosity over greed. You want to avoid false teaching? Don't be quarrelsome. Those are the, the, the instructions given for godliness in 1 Timothy 3. And this is what Paul is emphasizing to us here. So many of our difficulties in knowing the truth are because we don't have the requisite character to be able to discern the truth from error. We don't have the requisite dependence on the Spirit. It's not because our minds are broken, it's because our hearts are broken. And we're not devoted to Christ at a proper level. So the question that we ask of a new idea, a new ideology in our day, is does this ideology honor God's stated definition of godly living? We have a new trend in our, in our culture, a new movement, a new ideology. Does this ideology move me to live like Christ lived? Or does it move me to live in some different way? We could take this method of testing, identifying error at both the level of belief and behavior. We could take this to multiple different ideologies of our day. The one that, that is probably, many of us probably already have in our minds based on how we've seen this passage play out is the LGBT revolution of our day. You ask the question of that ideology. How does that hold up to this test? Well, we can ask the creation test. Does that ideology honor God's created order the way God designed for humans to function? No, we see that. God created man and woman. He created marriage. He created one man to be with one woman. And that, the idea of the LGBTQ plus movement, it violates this created order that God created, defined for us. So does that, that ideology, does it celebrate godly living? No, I think we could answer the same way about that movement of our day. But let's look at some that are a little bit harder to, to define. Because before we have the LGBTQ revolution, we have this movement of expressive individualism. Before we have people that go their own way and, and define their own truth, before that happens, we have people that are told, your, your view of the world is most important. You've got to find yourself. This self-actualization led to expressive individualism where we made the self the center of everything. And we gave people permission to define for themselves what they wanted, what they thought was right, what felt right to them. And when we do that as a culture, we have to ask these same questions. Does this idea honor and celebrate God's creative plan and intentions? No. Because we ask the question, why are you trying to be a better you? Maybe you're trying to be a better you by pursuing this, um, uh, this influencer culture of, of diet and, and exercise and all these different things to improve yourself. Maybe you're trying to improve yourself to serve God and his kingdom, but that's not what it looks like in our culture on the whole, right? 
It looks like we have a whole bunch of individuals that are trying to be better versions of themselves, to be notable, to be more recognized, to be more respected and appreciated. And when we make self the king, when we make the individual the king, then we end up with a society full of individuals that don't care nearly as much about everybody else but care about selves. And they care about pursuing the influencers they see online. They care about, about pursuing an image of somebody else that they see, and that's what I want to attain to. That's what I want to get to. When God's creative plan and God's intention is to follow Christ, to follow his image, not to self-actualize and self-express. So does this idea honor and celebrate godly living? No, because this is the idea, this is where we get this idea that we can define our own, that we can make up our own definitions of life and what's important and even morality. It comes from this idea of expressive individualism. What about the prosperity gospel? Everybody knows the prosperity gospel is false teaching, but the prosperity gospel is far more subtle and dangerous than most of us recognize. We can pick on the TV preachers that want you to sow a seed and give them $100 and then you'll receive some blessing from God because you gave them this, this specific gift. We can pick on that and say, yeah, that's wrong. But every single one of us has something that we want and that we pray to God for what we want. And we expect because God loves us, he's going to give us what we want. And probably many of us have been in that point where we all of a sudden have this crisis where we recognize I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I was told God loves me I was told God wanted what was best for me and I was told that I just needed to pray about it and then what I prayed for it did not happen how can I believe in this God and I can tell you it's subtle it's dangerous but it is the same root of the prosperity gospel if I'm faithful if I pray if I check my boxes of godliness, then God must, then God will bless me and cause me to prosper. And it is not the true gospel. The true gospel says that just as Jesus suffered, those who follow Jesus will suffer. And we will live every day in the fallenness of the world that has been led astray by human sin. We are not promised that God is going to bless us in any sort of physical or material sense. But we are promised that in the end, in eternity, we can have hope throughout all of the, the difficulty of this life because in eternity, all will be made right and all will be made perfect. That's the goal that we live for. But the temptation to have just a little bit of that prosperity gospel in our minds that violates God's created order, that violates what God has presented himself as, that violates the true gospel we know, it's a subtle and it's an easy false teaching that we must know the truth and combat. And we pursue godliness to know that Christ reveals himself to us through the scriptures. And the Christ that is revealed through the scriptures is a suffering servant who calls his followers to suffer as he suffered. I don't know what the individual challenges are coming into your own life and into your own beliefs. But I know that every single one of us is hated by an enemy that is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. And that means that there's going to be false ideas that come at us and combat us. 
Some of them are introduced through your workplace. Some of them introduced online. Some of them introduced through your own family. Trying to get you to think things that aren't true about God. What God is showing us in this passage is that the truth can be known. And the truth is known through the scriptures. What God is calling the church to do is to come together and to pursue the truth in the scriptures together. And so I'll close it this way. I'll ask the band to come up. We're going to have another song. But I'll close our time together this way with two challenges. Number one, train yourself for godliness. We actually talked on this passage a little bit a a couple months ago. We looked at all the times in 1 Timothy that this phrase is used that that shows up here in chapter 4. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's a few times throughout the book that gets used. We we talked about that in November together, or uh, October, I guess. But what we want to see here is that godliness is of value in every way. Just as physical exercise is of value, it's of temporal value. And yet godliness, training in godliness, is of eternal value. So verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. That means, brothers and sisters, that offer of salvation is made for all people. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement that he is the Savior for all people. And yet some will reject that offer. And so godliness and this hope that we have is only available to those who actually believe. So train yourself in godliness. Train yourself in the Word and in Scripture. And reject the false ideologies of our day. Use this passage Pray through it, look through it, and think, what else can you come up with? What are these other false ideologies that are coming at us in our culture and society, maybe even within the church? What is God calling his church to do? To stand up for the truth and to beware of false doctrine. So I'm going to invite you. What is God calling you to do to go deeper in godliness right now? I'm going to ask you to, to go into a time of reflection on that question. And maybe the, the right step is more defined, practical Bible reading. Maybe it's going deeper in prayer. There's resources that can help you with both. There's a group of people from this church that are reading through the Old Testament in a year today. I'd love for you to jump in. I'd love for you to work, to work your way through with us in that. If you want to go deeper in prayer, the best place to start is on Wednesday night, coming to prayer meeting and just listening. You don't have to pray. Just listening and let the hearts of the saints that are praying around you demonstrate to you what godliness and prayer can look like. There's practical steps for all of us. So I'd ask you as we sing, you can stand, you can sing, and you can celebrate. But ask the Spirit of God, where are you calling me to go next in response to the word that you've heard? Stand and sing with us.
shines for all to see. Your name, your name is victory. All praise will rise to Christ our King. Your name, your name is victory.
Father, we close our time with you. Just in your presence, recognizing the beauty of your resurrection. That, Father, we can live and move and have our being in you because Christ has resurrected and the Spirit has resurrected us to newness of life. We are not who we once were, but we are new and different and righteous in your sight. God, keep us pure in a dark age. Keep us pure as we discern how to combat the false teachings of our day. Keep us righteous as we pursue godliness above all. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now receive the blessing from the Lord. And I'll remind you after I do this blessing, we'll have a video that's going to come on. If you need to pick up your kids upstairs, you, you can do that. But we would invite maybe one person from a family to stay and, and watch the video and uh, kind of see what this um, is all about. But for now, we'll close the service officially with the high priestly prayer from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.